If you will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you were here with us last Lord's Day, you know that we are in, during this summer season, a special series on the Christian's excellent behavior. The Christian's excellent behavior. And last Lord's Day, we looked at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, which says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens or sojourners and exiles or strangers to abstain from the fleshly lusts or the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul, your soul. Keep your conduct, verse 12 says, among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, excellent or honorable, so that when they speak against you or slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds or because they see your good works, will glorify God on the day of visitation." Now, last time when we talked, we talked about the idea that the Christian's excellent behavior is going to be seen by Peter very practically in four constituent elements of most of our lives as citizens of a country, as those who are workers in the workplace or marketplace. Wives to husbands and husbands to wives. Those are very, very wonderful and clear places in which the Christian can keep their behavior excellent among the unbelieving world. As the unbelieving world sees us live out our Christianity in front of them. And in those four areas... Peter begins first by describing how our excellent behavior can be seen as a citizen of our country. Now, I probably don't need to say how controversial this is. It is most certainly something that many Christians have great struggle with. Struggle in the sense that you and I would otherwise want a government that would believe everything that we believe, that those in high positions would affirm all of the things that you and I would affirm, especially socially and morally. But we know that's not the case, right? We know that the vast majority of those who are representatives in our country, for our country, don't believe the kinds of things that we believe from the teaching and the principles of the Word of God. We know that. But I suppose that one of the reasons that it is this way, especially in our country, to say nothing of so many of the other countries of the world, is because God wants us to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This is not merely a battle, although it is, 
but it is also an opportunity. It is a grand opportunity. And just as soon as Peter says that we are to keep our conduct, our behavior, excellent among the unbelievers, honorable and noble, so that when they slander you, not if, but when, when they slander you, as evildoers, they will at some point be convicted when God visits them by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, showing in their hearts that the kind of behavior in which they're initially slandering us as evildoers, in fact, is no evil doing at all, but is righteousness, holiness, moral purity, godliness, excellence in our morality, so that when they see these good works of ours, they will be visited by our Lord Jesus Christ, opening their eyes to the truth of their own sin when their wickedness is compared to our godliness. That's our mission. You know, the government and evildoers, no matter how evil they are, they are not, in point of fact, our enemies though they may be enemies of the cross, they are our mission field. They are our opportunity to live so differently and to speak so differently that they are seeing by God's grace and providence and election the opportunity to be overwhelmed with the truth that salvation really is in Jesus Christ. And that you and I are those who are carrying such a message to them by not only what we say, but possibly even most importantly, by how we speak and live the gospel in tandem with one another. What we say with our lives and what we say with our lips. This is, this is where Peter is going here in First Peter chapter 2, and on into chapter 3, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7, where he talks about the husbands and how they ought to treat their wives. And even in verses 8, all the way through verse 12, he's continuing to talk about all of this which is paraded in front of a watching world and how we ought to live so distinctively, so Christianly, so excellently that we are a draw toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Peter pens this biblical text, he starts here at submission to the authority of government. This is, this is absolutely critical. And he starts with the concept of submission. Submission. And if you and I, as believers in Christ, if we're anything, we're models of submission. You say, speak for yourself. Well, it, it is to be this way, submissive behavior. And this is, this is very practical, my friends, very, very practical. For instance, 
you and I could say in question form, how and I, as a Christian, how can we respond submissively to our government? It's a good question. When do I disobey the government that God has placed me over? What are the practical steps in submitting to my government? Uh, You might even ask in another series of questions about submission, how do I submit to a tyrant as a boss? How do I submit even to a Christian boss? Do I cut corners because he's a Christian and he knows I'm one too? How does a wife submit herself to an unbelieving husband? Peter's going to teach us on that very thing. And how can I, as a husband, while not submitting to my wife, how can I love her in such a way that she responds by lovingly and submissively responding to me out of that love that she knows that I have for her? These are, these are great questions. I mean, even that question about a woman who is a godly person who is living her life as a Christian wife and a Christian mother in front of an unbelieving husband and father. How can I, as a saved woman, be submissive to an unsaved husband? Boy, that is a very, very important question. Some of you may very well be in that situation. And, and Peter wants to give us all of the answers to those things, or at least enough answers that you and I can take this passage and other places in the Word of God and apply them to our lives so that we are living this Christian excellent behavior in the face, not just of a watching world out there, but maybe also in your country and perhaps even so much closer to home in your home. This is This is all that Peter wants us to know, and he wants us to know it through, let's call it the portal of submission, submission. Now, I know that even that word itself, submission, strikes fear in the hearts of men and women because we've seen probably ourselves so many bad examples of those who might even say they're being submissive when they're not. Or they've mangled the idea practically of submission, wrangled it to the point where it doesn't really even look like submission at all. So this is very, very important. We might even ask the question, what about general submission within the body of Christ? What about submission to pastoral leaders or elders? What about what Ephesians 5:21 says about the idea of submissiveness or submission to each other in the fear of Christ as fellow members of the body of Christ. This is, this is really important, and I want us to take this summer to develop this concept of submissiveness, not only for our church, but as a, a launching pad, as a, a stepping stone for you and for me as we work through the general concepts of submission and then the specific ideas of how to live submissively in our world so that we are Christians with excellent behavior. So, I want to talk about this morning submission to the government. And I want to do so 
by our looking, probably with not only this morning, but next morning as well, five ways of understanding our submission to the government. Five ways for us to understand our submission to the government. The first is the command of submission to government, the command. The second is the context, the context of submission to our government. The third, the character, the character of submission to the government. Fourthly, the condition of submission to the government, the condition. And finally, number five, the comprehensiveness of submission to the government. The command, the context, the character, the condition, and the comprehensiveness of our needed submission to our government. Now, of course, we won't get through all of that this morning. I trust and hope we'll get through the first two of them. And the first one is this, the command of submission to the government. Look at the first part of verse 13 in your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice the command. It's very, very clear. And it's in the first two words of our English text. Be subject, the ESV, or NASB, Submit yourselves. That's a command. It's an imperative. It's an imperative command. We might say it in English like this. It is imperative that you submit yourself to the government. That's what Peter's saying. The Lord is illumining Peter's mind to take pen and ink to paper and to write these words in imperatival command form. Be subject. Now that's striking because he's just said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable or excellent or noble so that when they slander you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, when they see your good behavior because of your good deeds, would glorify God on the day of visitation. And the very first example he uses The very first thing right out of the chute is how you as a Christian relate to your government, the government that's over you. I I think that's really striking. I mean, he could have started with the home first. He could have started with how the dog is to be submissive to the children, how the children are to be submissive to the parents. And then he could have worked his his way up and talked about government last or, or possibly not at all because if he had chosen not to talk about it at all, it might have been because the government that these wayfaring Christians, these exiles, these strangers, do you remember that? That list in verse 11, your aliens, your sojourners, your exiles, your strangers, uh, whatever the translation is in your English Bibles, uh, that's, that's a group of professing Christians who, most of them not living in their home area, they've been pushed out because of the great persecution of the land, and, and they're now living, so many of them, in these disparate places, and guess who's in charge? If our chronology is right, the emperor is Nero. I suspect maybe that's the very reason that Peter starts where he starts. Because that may very well be uppermost in their minds. 
submitting to Nero? This bloodthirsty, maniacal, ruinous leader? The, the, The one who history tells us puts Christians onto poles and tars them and and lights them on fire so that he might light up his garden parties? Is Is this what you mean, Peter, when you're saying submit to someone like that? And and this maniacal ruler in an unjust, uncivil, wicked world. Well, here's here's the command. Be subject to. The the word subject here in verse 13 is hupotasso, which may have had its earliest origins as a military word meaning to place or to line up or to rank yourself underneath and authority. And we know all about submitting to the authority of your military commander Because even if you haven't been in the military, like me, you still see and know and understand very clearly from the stories that your family may tell, or your mom, or your dad, or those uh, who you know in your family or outside your family, that you must do everything, especially, for instance, in basic training, that you are told to do, right? And they can even make it so hard on you, say for instance in basic training, so that they are breaking your will down so that you are submissive to the will of another. Now, I didn't say that was fair. I didn't even say that was good. But it is noteworthy. It's noteworthy because whether you're talking about submitting yourself, lining up yourself, Uh, being in rank underneath an authority in a military context or you're talking about doing it in a governmental context, it's still the same. Peter is commanding his readers to place themselves, to line up, to rank themselves underneath the authority of the government, whatever government that might be. This is going to be a very, very important word, this word submission, as we continue to work our way through this entire section. It's actually also a tremendously important word throughout our Bibles. It's going to be used, by the way, in 1 Peter 2.18 when also speaking of masters and slaves, employees, employers. It's also going to be used in chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 5 of wives to their husbands. So this is a very, very important word to understand. And because it's so important, I want you to notice some of the other places in our Bibles where this particular word or word group is used and in what very interesting contexts it is used. Look in your Bibles at Luke 2.51. Luke 2.51. This is going to be very, very important for us, and I want to labor to give this to us because this is going to be very, very important contextually to understand, but it's also going to be very good to understand in light of the fact that you and I have a natural bent in our hearts not to want to submit to anyone. Isn't it so? I've used this illustration a hundred times. When you are walking along that sidewalk, minding your own business, just 
enjoying the wonderful lawns that you see that are finely manicured by by those who are working so hard to make their houses and their lawns look so presentable. And you walk by one of those finely manicured lawns and you see a sign that says what? Stay off the grass. Maybe with an exclamation point. And in our hearts... Even if we choose not to step on the grass, do not tell me you're not thinking what I'm thinking. And that is, do not tell me what to do. If I want to step on that grass, I have every right and reason to do it because you can't tell me I can't. Because we have in our hearts the idea that submission to anyone or anything is up to my prerogative. If I choose to do that, I will. If I choose not to do that, I won't. And you can't tell me I can't. Look at Luke 2. This is very clear. Luke 2, 51. And it says about none other than our Lord Jesus as he was growing up, Luke 2.51, and he went down with them, that is his parents, his family, and came to Nazareth and was what? Submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Even Jesus was submissive. He was submissive as he honored his parents. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is another use of this idea of submissiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then, speaking of the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all and all. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. This is a a very, very famous portion of the book of Romans, and it too is talking about submission to the authorities, the government over us. Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to, that's our word, submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That means that God has put them in place there, whatever government it is and wherever it is, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is a, this is a principle of submission. Jesus submitted We are to submit. Jesus in his earthly ministry was a submissive person. We are to be submissive. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. Ephesians 5, 24. I'm going through this list because this is important for us to to lay the groundwork, the bedrock for submission. Ephesians 5, 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ... 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submission to wives. Look at Titus, Titus 2.9. In Titus 2.9, it says about this master-slave relationship, or we might say in our 21st century context, with differences, of course, the idea of employees and employers. Bond slaves, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 7. This is so very important, James 4, 7. These are just places in our Bibles, and just a few, actually, where the idea of submission is mentioned and where it ought to be obeyed. James chapter 4, verse 7. Here's a generic statement, James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to whom? To God. Resist the devil, in other words, don't submit to him, resist him, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And in the context, this is a drawing near to God in salvation submissiveness, and he will draw near to you. And then, back in 1 Peter, back in 1 Peter, look at chapter 5, verse 5, talks about pastors, elders, overseeing the flock, taking care of them, shepherding them. And then Peter looks to the widest members of the congregation, and he says this, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, and then notice this, widest possible group, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we are to clothe ourselves with humility that works itself out practically in submission. Submission. Submission doesn't have to be a dirty word. It doesn't have to be. It can be something that you and I could use as a way to show off our excellent behavior. And I can just hear it right now. I can hear possibly some of these who are these aliens and these strangers And they're reading Peter's words in a tiny congregation in a tiny part of Asia Minor, and they hear these words, be subject to your emperor. And I can hear the whispers, to Nero, to that ungodly man, is is that what we're supposed to do? Well, I read Romans 13, and it says that every institution that has been set up as a government over a country, over a municipality, over a principality, every one of those has been instituted by whom? God. So that if I'm resistant and unsubmissive to that government, then I'm unsubmissive to to God. This is what he's saying. And and notice, back in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. I mean, even if you're not being submissive in the sense 
of every wrong thing that your government does, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You know that God has set it up, the Lord is in charge, and here I believe the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ's sake, be subject. To whom? Here's what it says. To every human institution. Wow. Every human institution. I just wish he hadn't used the word every. I mean, every? I mean, since it is the Lord who is sovereign over all governments, which means he's the one who ordains all of these entities of the world, every time you're submitting to your government, you're really submitting to God himself because he has ordained the government you're submitting to. And when you're submitting to that government, you're in essence submitting to him. Submit yourselves, therefore, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, having said that, it is true. It is very true. It is painfully true that you cannot submit to all governments at every time, in every place, in the history of the world, in every way. You say, you just contradicted yourself. Well, let's think about that. Notice, I haven't been saying that you were always to do everything in every place, under every government, even when they command you to do something against the Word of God. Now, that's a big qualifier. That's a really big qualifier. In other words, if you have a government and they are over you in the Lord and that government is punishing evildoers and praising right doers, then you're not only called upon to submit to them, but to actually applaud them. Because government is in place to actually deal with evildoers. That's why God has them in charge. And to praise the right doers, the people who are doing right, like like you and like me, because we're attempting to submit to that government. Then in that case, we are to be submissive to every one of them as they are living out their God-ordained sovereign rulership from the Lord through them to us. And that's why it says to every human institution. However, what if the government at a point in time commands you and I to live in such a way, to obey in such a way that is in direct conflict with the Word of God? And you and I know the answer to that. I want to give you some examples because you might not readily think of these examples, but they're even in our Bibles. Now, that doesn't mean that we say, yes, every human institution we're to submit to and we're to be subject to all of these rulers when it's convenient, when I want to, when it seems to suit my fancy. No, it says all the time, every time. And the only time that there's a qualifier and there are examples of these in which you and I can't do it is when they command us to do something that God has told us not to do. Or they command us to stop doing something that God has commanded us 
to do. I want you to look all the way back in the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus. This is, this is a great place to start. I won't give you all the examples, but I'll give you three, four, five examples so that you can tag these in your Bibles so that you can see, oh, yes, I do want to be submissive to my government, but when that government tells me to do something against my God, against my God's commands, or they try to force me to do something against my God's prohibitions, I have the the right and responsibility before God to do what he commands me even when my government is crossing him. Look at Exodus and Exodus chapter 1. It's very, very clear, Exodus chapter 1. You remember the Hebrew midwives? You remember that situation in Exodus chapter 1? Look, for instance, in verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt, this is Exodus 1.8, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, what you have here is a prime example of a government that is corruptly saying, we have to figure out through a cunning means, through a sinful agenda, how to make sure that these people, if they grow and multiply, don't put us out of office. Okay? That's what's going on here. So what did they do? Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them, the Jewish people, to afflict them with heavy burdens. We know that very well from the book of Exodus. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, notice this, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt, because he was still concerned, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Trying to deal with all the, the male men, the, the men who would ultimately become leaders, of course, and warriors and fighters. But notice Exodus one seventeen. But the midwives feared God... That's most important, isn't it? They feared God, first and foremost, overarchingly, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. That's that's an example, isn't it, of saying, you are asking us to kill children, and we will not. We will not do that. Now, the text goes on to explain what they were saying. doesn't explain everything, of course. But what it is saying is that's an example in our Bibles of how when you are being commanded by your government to do something that you know the Word of God says you cannot do, you must not do, then you have the right to say, I will not do it. Now, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then maybe you're going to have your head lopped off. So be it. So be it. 
That's what I call strong conviction. Strong conviction. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what even is said about things like this. Verse 23 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I I love that. They loved God and his edicts more than the idea of the threat of the government against them. Now, that's clear. You say, I wish I had clear examples myself. Then I could say, well, I'm not going to do this because of that. Well, there are some of those clear examples. And perhaps some of those clear examples will rise to the surface. Some of them appear as though they might and steadily are. So that you and I would say, I can't do that. And they might say, we're going to threaten you with taking away your house, taking away your business, taking away that which you hold dear possibly even your children. What's your answer? What do we do? Well, the first and foremost thing that we do when this qualified sense of submitting to the government comes to the fore is that you and I have to be sure that what we are saying no to in and for our government is exactly rock-solid biblical truth, biblical principles for which we must conscientiously object. Got to be clear about that. Very, very clear. Here, I'll give you another example. Look at Daniel's prophecy. Remember Daniel's prophecy? You know, Ezekiel, Daniel, right there in the midst of these prophets of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Daniel 3, 13. You know, of course, that Daniel was a righteous prophet, a holy man, a wonderful example of virtue. And these three other Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that that was their their given names by this particular ungodly government. That was not their Hebrew names, but that's who they are known as now. And according to verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they are in a tough spot. Why? Because if you go back to verse 13, It says, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. Now, he's the king. He's in charge. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, be brought before him. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, again, like I've said, I wish it would be as plain and clear as that for us at all times and in every way. Sometimes it's not that clear. But here it is, verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, you don't have one. It's not going to happen. I'm going to force you to worship my God or God's. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. Now, maybe they said it with with a a, a tinge of fear. Maybe they said it with a bit of trembling. Uh, But maybe the most important aspect of this whole story 
is their resoluteness. And here's what they say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Well, that in and of itself might be injurious to you, right? We're not going to answer the king. I mean, who does that? Who stiffs the king? We're not going to answer this. But here's what we know. If what you're saying is so, Our God, whom we serve, who isn't your God, of course, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, maybe because of that real stalwart forward thinking and that resolute heart, Maybe they've just used some kind of uh, verbal trickery and they've intimidated the king and he'll say something like this, wow, hey, maybe I should back off here. No, he's the king. He's in charge. He can do whatever he wants. He thinks he's God himself. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I suppose maybe the face before was, come on, fellas. If you don't do this, it's curtains for you. And now it went from a up countenance to a down countenance. What did you, are you defying the king? And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow! Even getting close to it. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they did. They came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So, are you and I looking for the eject button of a fiery furnace? From the trial to the fire. And in the fire, maybe God will miraculously cause none of us, as we defy our government, to be harmed. Well, this certainly is a miracle, isn't it? It's a miracle of epic proportions. I expect no such miracle in our case. Why? 
because it appears by the revelation of God, the completed New Testament that we have, that you and I have such a clear continuity between this life and the life to come so that even if you and I are defying our government because they're saying you will not worship Jesus Christ, it's of little consequence to us ultimately whether or not we worship him in this life or in the life to come. Isn't it true? I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't think about it that way. We think more about the idea that we ought to be rescued, that this ought to be a miraculous occurrence just like that. Well, perhaps if God wants to do that, he can, and he certainly will if he desires to do so. But I take the tact that you and I are safest whether we're in that fire or whether we're in glory. And if the fire consumes us, there's a great continuity between this life and the life to come. My soul will never be incinerated. My soul will live forever. And so if I know that as a Christian in the New Covenant era, if I know that, then I have no issues with saying to my government, if you tell me that I am to worship so-and-so or such-and-such, and I tell you I worship Jesus Christ and Him alone, and if you tell me the consequences of your actions, sir, will make you a death certificate. What do I say? So be it. Because there's great continuity between this life and the life to come. Fear not those who can kill the what? The body. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, this is a great example, isn't it? It's a great example. You say, no, it's not. Not for me. Yes, it is, because notice what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, our God can do this, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your gods. You see, apart from the miraculous salvation saving of those boys physically, they had the same mentality we have, and we have the same mentality they had. I'm going to trust God And if my life is taken from me by ungodly governments, so be it. God has a hold of my soul. This is is true. And I think this comes into the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. This this comes through even in our new covenant age. Acts chapter 4. I say this mentality regardless of whether or not miracles of epic proportions are performed for us, even if they don't, the same mentality is here. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 13. Now when they saw, Acts 4.13, the boldness of Peter and John. What boldness? Well, remember, don't forget, Peter healed a disabled man, according to chapter 3, And it caused a ruckus in the community. And now the government is very, very upset. And so these rulers, and by the way, they're even religious leaders, rulers and elders and scribes, and even the high priest, according to chapter 4, verse 6, Anna, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, uh, they, they were not too happy at all. In fact, they even... They even question him, 
Peter in Acts 4, 7. By what power or by what name do you do this? Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In other words, he's totally healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter is not only bold in performing a miracle and raising this lame man up to full health, but he's also saying who did it, not taking any glory for himself. And now verse 13, and now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. In other words, we cannot deny deny the miracle. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then here's our punchline, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, you're going to have to pay the price if you don't do what we're doing, and perhaps you will, verse 20, for we, that is, that is Peter and John and the apostolic band and the new believers who are, are coming into the kingdom as a result of Pentecost, verse 24, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And look at chapter 5. Chapter 5. This is, this is continuing. All this persecution. And you remember they were thrown in prison and miraculously delivered. And what did they do? They said, look, this submission to government this is getting quite old. This is a problem. And remember, the same guy, Peter, who is having this experience is the same guy who wrote 1 Peter. And this guy is saying, I'm going to do what God commands me to do regardless of the governmental interference. And the chief priest came And they called together the council, according to verse 21, Acts 5, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought to them. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in prison, and they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, the guards are standing at the doors, and when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard those words, they were greatly perplexed. In other words, how did these guys get out? We had them guarded carefully and securely wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That's doing exactly what they were commanded not to do. And when they were commanded not to do what they in fact were doing, 
even when they'd been strictly charged, according to verse 28, not to teach in this name, and yet they're filling Jerusalem with the teaching of the name of Jesus and all of his good works and all of his mighty power and his relationship with his heavenly Father. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, here's the tagline, here's the crescendo, we must obey God rather than men. It goes on to say they were enraged. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to just put this out. They wanted nothing but this uprising of Christianity to be smashed, to be vanquished. And the more, according to the book of Acts, this persecution was fierce, the greater the multiplicity of the church. Why? Because they said we're going to obey God rather than men. Now that is what you and I are supposed to do when we're called upon to defy our God for the sake of obeying your government. That's the qualifier. But do you know that at least in our country, no one's telling us to do that right now? So what's the conclusion? Here's the conclusion. Tell everybody you possibly know about Jesus. Tell everybody, because the government isn't telling any of us not to. We have the full opportunity to do it. What are you waiting for? This is what we're called upon to do. You say, okay, well, I understand that. I'm just trying to to do some lesser things. I recognize, I acknowledge that they're lesser things, like making sure I'm paying my taxes. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing except for those Christians who aren't paying their taxes or all their taxes. Because if you're not, how is that behavior Christian and excellent? Because it says in Romans 13 that we're to pay our taxes. It's a command. That's just one example. Are you paying your taxes? Or how about this? Look, I know I should be talking to other people about Jesus because the Government is not commanding me not to, and I know that I'm not doing it to the best of my ability because I got a real problem with my government. I got a real problem. And frankly, I spend more of my time verbally and my mental exercises with criticizing this government of mine than I do telling others about Jesus. Is that not true of some professing Christians? They spend more time either speaking evil against the government or making bad jokes about the government when all of the oxygen that they have under the sovereignty of God that's allotted to their life is being used doing that rather than talking to others about Jesus. And there may well come a day when you and I are fiddling around with talking bad about our government and not talking about Jesus when the next thing to talk about is the fact that our government has said you can no longer talk about Jesus. So use all the oxygen that has been allotted to your care to talking to people about Jesus. Now, I'm done. I only got through one. Pray for me that I'll get through the next ones. 
because this is so important. And it's critical for us to understand that the Bible does teach us to do that which is a a Christian excellent behavior even toward our government. Are there traps? Yes. Are there potholes? To be sure. Are there landmines to be avoided? Yes, a thousand times. But right now, we have the opportunity to do, frankly, what so many governments of the world are commanding their people not to do. Let's take our lives and our lips to the front. And I want to really encourage you to do that for the sake of showing off your Christian excellent behavior. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are those who can be so critical of our government, so critical of so many things that, frankly, hit the mark on what our government isn't doing that it should and isn't responding as they ought. But at least at this point, they haven't taken away our opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ to those around us. And for that, we are most grateful. Father, thank you for the opportunity to learn today a little bit more about submission. And may we do it for your honor and for your glory and for your praise and for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.